Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. All right, good morning, everyone. I'm going to start in a little unconventional kind of way. So here we go. We can run straight into your arms unafraid. Cause every time we need you, we're met by love. We can lift our hands to heaven full of faith. Cause every time we worship, we see your face. Normally, as is custom here at Antioch, we have a main thing for every sermon. Later, you're going to see the main thing, but I just wanted to tell you that's the main thing. Okay? So if I could take today's main thing and like musicalize it, that would be the main thing. And if you leave here today with nothing, leave with that. Leave with that. Father, we worship you. We glorify you. There is no one like you in heaven above or earth below. Who else can speak and stuff happens? Who else can till the soil of our hearts and breathe your breath of life within us and animate us to look like Jesus and to live life in your character, in your nature, and for your purposes? So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would fill this place, that you would send us at the appropriate time to be little Jesuses in our workplace, our neighborhoods, our schools, wherever it is that we find ourselves living, hearing your voice and living for the sake of others and for the sake of the expansion of your kingdom in Jesus name. And the church said, amen. Okay. So we pulled the minivan up to the house and I mean, couldn't put the thing in park fast enough before all those little eyes were looking out the corner window and they saw it from the van to the driveway. They saw it. I don't know how, but they saw it sitting there, kind of leaned over on its side in the driveway, sparkling, glistening even in the sunshine, radiating in the sunshine. And before we could put the thing in park, they push the little button and the door opens and all these little people scurry out to go and to lay their eyes on it, to grab it even, to have it in their presence. That's right. They saw from the minivan window that three, four, five-year-old bicycle laying in the garage sale driveway. And to them, it was the treasure of heaven. Which for the parents living on a budget, that was nice. And so, the six, seven-year-old boy grabs the handlebars, leans the bicycle up, looks into his parents' eyes, and says, Mom, Dad, this must be mine. And so, how could we say no? The parents reached in, pulled the wallet out, put the $5 bill on the table and laid it on the line to put that bicycle into the arms of that child. And we placed it in the back of the minivan and we drove it home and we pushed the button and the minivan door rose up and the child reached in and pulled the bicycle out, still glistening in the sunshine. 
still radiating and placed it on the driveway, gets on top of the thing, and then looks back at mom and dad. And it was then. It was then that the main character, my six, seven-year-old son, looked me in the eyes, looked mom in the eyes, and we realized. We realized that it had occurred to him what we already knew. And that was, Hudson, we have a problem. That's one of my favorite parts of this story, because it kind of plays on Houston, we have a problem. Anyway, Hudson, sorry Rockets fans, we have a problem. And that is, you don't know how to ride a bicycle. Like, we've had this whole euphoric experience of purchasing the bike. The kids are happy. I mean, the guy thinks it's brand new. Might as well be. The parents are happy. What kind of bike costs five bucks that looks like it's in decent shape? And yet, the kid can't ride it. And it was then that we knew we could not go forth in life without help, without a guide, without someone who could come alongside this young child and teach him to ride his bike. And that's when it occurred to me who that person would be. It occurred to me, of all the people in the universe, we need someone who has a prophetic spiritual gift, who can speak the truth, who can look people in the eyes and say difficult things that they need to hear, but at the same time, can be a shepherd, can be a nurturer, can help dust off your knees when they're scraped, who can help nurse you back to health when you've fallen off your bike. And so, whom else but mom embodies these two spiritual giftings and can teach this child to ride this bike. And you know what? Mom was a beast with it. I mean, I could say some stuff about mom. Mom ain't here. Mom was great. And if she's listening to this recording, she was even better than I described because she knew some tips, some tricks, some techniques to help this kid ride the bike. So as the guide, she had a plan. The plan consisted of things like, when you're learning to ride the bike, you pull it up next to the curb, and you use the curb as leverage to push off from, to get you going in the right direction. She knew things like, you keep your eyes focused on the destination. As you're riding the bike down the side of the street or the sidewalk, you're going to have all kinds of distractions on either side. You're going to have the grass in the front yard. You're going to have toys left out by the neighbors. You're going to have your siblings laughing at you. But if you stay focused on the end goal in the midst of the waves and the storm, if you stay focused on the end goal, you will learn to ride this bike. She knew stuff like that. She knew stuff like, even in the midst of all those distractions, you just keep pedaling. All right? It didn't originate with Dory. It originated with Heidi. You just keep pedaling. You just keep going. When the thing starts to tilt, you keep going. You're going to have some bumps and bruises along the way, but you get back on that thing and you keep pedaling. And sure enough, this amazing guide who had this wonderful three-pronged plan taught the kid to ride a bike. And it was amazing. We were at the grandparents' house. The grandparents got a big backyard. The kid looked us in the eyes as if to say, now is my time. And walked over to the bicycle, got on that thing, remembered those techniques, and he rode it from one side of the backyard to the other. And then at the end, he curved to the left and he ran into the fence. But it didn't matter because for those brief 15, 20 seconds, he was riding a bike by himself for the first time. Praise the Lord. 
What in the world does that have to do with any kind of sermon? I'm glad you asked. I've been doing some research into the power of story. And if you, you know a little bit about me or you've heard me preach before, you know that I enjoy a good story. I've had a couple people even this week ask me about the front collision warning on my van, which continues to go off because I continue to struggle with my driving. Anyway, um, I love a good story because it invites us in and we can identify with characters and struggles and triumphs and tribulations. And so along with that, I've also been looking into marketing and a little bit of branding in regards to my school. Because my school is a school of choice, which means kids have the option, should they apply and be accepted, to attend the school. And at the end of a school year, they have the option to say, thanks but no thanks, I'm going somewhere else. And so because of that, I've got to approach my school through a marketing lens. And what better way to do that than through the power of story? Which led me to Donald Miller, who's an author that you might be familiar with. He's written books uh, from the past, like Blue Like Jazz, A Million Miles, Searching for God Knows What, and other things. And he has started a company basically called StoryBrand. So I've done some research on StoryBrand.com, and that has led to what's in your outline today that I'd like to explain just a little bit. Now, Donald Miller has looked back across 2,000 or so years of stories. That's an interesting thing to describe. 2,000 or so years of stories, and he's come up with what he says is the primary template or framework for how stories are delivered. Basically, stories tend to, the good ones anyway, that captivate us, tend to start with a character. And the character we learn about, we identify with, we're invited into the life of the character. And then the character has some kind of problem. And then in the midst of that problem, the character doesn't know what to do, and the character is introduced to a guide. And the guide has a plan that the character embodies and and puts in action with the help of the guide that then leads to a call to action. And when the character lives out the plan, gets to the call to action, you start to see results in the life of the character. You start to see successes or sometimes failures. And this seems to be the framework for at least the stories that captivate us the most. So I started looking back over my childhood, and one movie that you might be familiar with um, from way back is the original Karate Kid. This movie seems to follow this format. You, you got Ralph Macchio, I forget the name in the story, but you got Ralph, and then he meets the, he's got a problem, right? And then he meets Mr. Miyagi, and then he paints the fence, and he gets the plan going, and all that kind of stuff, and in the end, he wins. Um, the Hudson story, the ride the bike story, I told it in this framework on purpose to kind of bring you in. Hudson's the character. He's got a problem. He gets this awesome bike. He doesn't know how to ride it. He needs a guide. His mama ends up being his guide. She's got a plan. Push off from the curve. Keep your eye on the, de- the destination. Keep pedaling. He enacts the plan. That's his call to action, and he learns how to ride his bike. He succeeds. Now, I love me some Donald Miller. Like, I couldn't put Blue Like Jazz down when it first came out. But I don't think he stumbled upon something that's original with him. You see, I I think there's this character who spoke and light happened. There's this character who said some stuff and some stuff appeared out of nowhere. There's a character who who knelt down into the ground he had created and began to till the the soil and began to breathe his breath and some people became animated and he told the people to go and live like him and be like him. 
to be fruitful and to multiply, to embody his kingdom for the sake of the universe he had created. But, but then along the way, there became a problem. The people were introduced to some alternative kingdoms, to some other ways of living, and they, they fell into that and they embraced that. And so they needed a guide because for years and years and years, sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. But eventually, this God put on the clothes of humanity and entered into the story that he had already put in motion anyway and showed his people once and for all in the person of Jesus who he is. And through his spirit sent his people into the world again and again and again to be like him so that all may come to know his love. So he was the guide who gave the plan, who called the people to action of which we get to participate which leads us to results. Now, I struggle a little bit with success and failure, to be honest, because it's all an offering to the Lord, and the, the, the fruit is His. Um, but I say all that to say, I love this framework because it's an echo of the original capital S story. So, I've put that in your outline really just for you. I'm not necessarily a fill-in-the-blank outline guy, and so... What I'm going to do in this sermon is I'm going to take Matthew 14, 22 through 33 with Peter as our main character. And I'm going to take Chris and Heidi circa 2011 with Chris and Heidi as the main character. And I'm going to take those two stories and I'm going to do this as best I can. And as you see the framework play out, the characters, the problems, the guides, the plans, the call to actions, take whatever notes are most meaningful for you. That's why I put the framework in the outline as it is. So that's where we're going. So with that in mind, let's go main thing, and then we'll go to the scripture passage. Three bullet points on the main thing this morning. First, we believe that God looks like Jesus. Second, as a result, the discovery of our true selves and the life applications of who we are find firm footing in him alone. And third, in Matthew 14, 22 through 33, Jesus reveals God and how he is our firm footing. Now, for those of you familiar with the passage, we're going to find Jesus walking on water and Peter walking on water too. And I got to be honest, when it came time to the opportunity to be a part of this firm footing series, I couldn't help. I, I just love me some irony. And so I could not help but step into the irony of firm footing found walking on the water. That was irresistible for me and a lot of where uh, the passion comes from in the midst of this sermon. So, Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. Jesus immediately, whoops, got off. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. 
Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to dig into your word this morning. We pray that you would speak, for we are your servants eager to hear your voice. And we pray, God, that you would give us the power and the fortitude and the sacrifice through your spirit to respond to what it is that you have to say. We give you glory. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, how does Jesus reveal God in this passage? Remember the main thing. The main thing, at least the first part, we believe that God looks like Jesus. How does Jesus reveal God? How is Jesus our firm footing as it plays out in the story of this passage? Well, first, in verse 23, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. We can trust Jesus to be who he is, who he says he is. We can trust Jesus to do what he says he's going to do because he spends time with the Father. He is the ultimate example of listening to the Lord, of knowing the Lord, and doing what he says. Now, like I said, I love me some irony, and there is some major irony here in that Jesus immediately sends the disciples away, right? Like, if there was ever a time for a celebration and a party, I mean, you fed 5,000, probably closer to 10 or 15,000 people with a couple of pieces of bread and some fish. Like, let's throw a party. That is pretty amazing, And yet immediately he takes his closest companions and he sends them away so that he can go up into the mountains by himself. Now, the irony is that when they do what he says, um, what he tells them to do, which some of the texts there might even be forcefully, like he forcefully sends them away, they find themselves on the sea in a storm without him. So in the time when they need him the most, he's in the mountains praying because he sent them away. I just, I think that's a little ironic. But he went up there because he wanted to know more of who God is. He was listening to his Father so that he could do what he says. Second of all, how does Jesus reveal God? How is Jesus our firm footing? Verse 25, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. Twofold, he did not leave them alone. There's irony there at the beginning of the passage, but ultimately he does not leave them alone. And he is out there walking on the water. So who owns the winds and the waves? Who owns the powers of the sea? If we look at sea as a a metaphor, as something that harkens back to the Old Testament, really from Genesis all the way through, we see that the, the raging waters, that the powers of the sea set up Uh, themselves contrary to the kingdom of God or seeking to overtake the kingdom of God. But here we find embodied in Jesus, the God who is more powerful than the wind and the waves, who actually stills, who actually calms the waters of the sea. Thirdly, in verse 27, but Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, take courage, I am here. Now this phrase, I am, in the Greek harkens back again to the Old Testament where we have God, especially in Exodus 3, describing himself as I am who I say I am. And so Jesus is identifying himself with this God by saying, I am here. You can be still, you can be calm, even in the midst of this raging storm, because I am is here, and I am who I say I am. Fourth, how does Jesus reveal God? How does Jesus be our firm footing. He says, yes, in verse 29, yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. 
It's been said to me many times, and I've found, I found much comfort in it, that as much as I desire to believe in Jesus, Jesus also believes in me. There's this element here in this passage of the disciple wanting to be like the rabbi. In some ways, I know I look at this passage and I go, you wanted to walk on the water, what in the world is up with that? But I think there's another way of looking at it in the sense that why would Peter want anything else than to be like his rabbi? So when he calls out to Jesus and Jesus says, come, he is embracing, he is stepping into the opportunity to be just like Jesus. And at least in that moment, believing that he can. Five, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? Again, Jesus is revealing God's belief in us because ultimately that belief is founded in him. Why are you not trusting me? Now, sometimes I think we look at this, I know I do, and it's more like a, why aren't you trusting me? But in reality, what if Jesus is saying, you can be like me? Oh, you of small faith. Not small faith in the sense of why isn't your faith bigger, but small faith in the sense of there's so much more to me that I would love to reveal to you if you would receive it. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? Verse 32, this is number six. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Of course it did. Who else calms the storm? Who else speaks and tells the storm to be quiet and it happens? And then finally they worship him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaim in verse 33. So Jesus reveals God. Jesus reveals that He is our firm footing through this passage in these seven ways. Which really brings me back to my story. And I want to pick up my story in May of 2011. My wife and I had been church planters in her hometown for about six and a half years. It had been a beautiful journey of triumphs and struggles. It had been an amazing experience of mountaintop and valley. And in May of 2011, we hit our lowest valley. And that was when the doors closed on our church plant. And to be honest, it was a time of wilderness. Um, really for what was probably the first time in my adult life, I was in a place where I felt much like the disciples at the beginning of this story. Are you kidding me? Like, why did you send us out on the sea just for us to drown in this storm? Like, why were you so forceful and immediate that we needed to leave after you had just performed the most amazing miracle, and now we're out on the storm rowing against the winds and the waves wondering if we're going to make it? And so I, I felt like, why in the world am I out here in the wilderness? Did you call us into this just so you would abandon us? And it was a time of wilderness for myself and for Heidi. My feelings were tied to production, perception and performance as i've mentioned in other sermons like that's what gets me and so i felt to be honest i i felt like a failure that we had launched out into this amazing endeavor and now it was closing and it was mostly my fault and i couldn't produce and the perception of others was you done launched out and tried something new and now you messed it up and i i, I struggled to move forward in the midst of that heidi would tell you Moving forward for her was fear, was anxiety, was depression. A lot of the same connect for both of us. And so, during that time in the wilderness, this would have been the rest of 11 on into February of 2012, I had a friend who went to a conference in Austin. I think it was called the Verge Conference. And there, he, was, he came back so excited because he'd, he'd had several books. 
um, and several experiences there at the conference. And so he wanted to give me one of the books that he got. And the book is entitled Seven, and it's written by a lady named Jen Hatmaker. And so he was so excited to come back with this gift for me. And I put on the best smile that I could and, and was so thankful for this gift. And then it wasn't that much longer that the book had this circular pattern on the cover uh, that was that was wet and that really was a great place where you would put drinks that are cold and that develop, like Heidi says, they develop sweat on the outside of the cup. Like I use the book as a cup holder. Um, because I, I just wasn't into it, right? I was still in my wilderness. I, I wasn't really feeling it. And so for weeks, for a couple months, the book sat on the end table and became my own, um, my own, what do they call it? Coaster. My own coaster there on the end table because I would just set drinks on there. But one day I was like, whatever. I mean, I, I got love for this friend, so I'll give it a shot. And I, I opened this book and I couldn't put the thing down. It was like, she took 40 or 45 blog posts, pieced them together into a book, and it just read like inviting me into the story. It embodied a lot of this framework from Donald Miller, and I couldn't put the thing down. And it was like my, my countenance began to change, and Heidi kind of started looking at me like, what's up with you? Like, you're, you're starting to smile. You're telling me all about this book. You've got like a little bit of your fervor back. Like, what's wrong? <laughs> and... As I'm sharing, she starts to lean in, and I finished the book in probably 24, 48 hours. And then she was like, I want to read it. I want to read it. So then I pass it off to her, and now we're sharing in all of these stories together as she's reading it too. And it was then that it was kind of like we started to see a little bit of hope. We started to see that things could possibly be a little different. Well, we were the characters, right? And we had a problem. The problem was May 2011, our church planting closed. And it was through this book that really Jen Hatmaker, knowing it or not, became our first guide. And we began to awaken to the possibility of living like this again. So we woke up on a Saturday morning, ready to go to garage sales, because that's just some of what we do on the weekend. Don't worry, the bicycle's not coming back into the story. Uh, But we woke up that morning, and, and Heidi, with conviction, really for the first time in a long time, she prayed, Lord... If you're leading us out of the wilderness, if you are calling us back to living this way, regardless of what that looks like, back to living this way, you have got to introduce us to some people in our own city that are doing it. And I mean, we knew God around that time, but we were on a journey, unbeknownst to us at the time, of knowing God in some some different ways that have really uh, formed us. And so... We set out to garage sales and she comes up on the first garage sale and literally like walks up and she sees these people wearing the same T-shirt and they're talking to each other. And she does what you do when you see people wearing the same shirt talking to each other. You lean in a little bit. (laughs) She's great at airports. You lean in a little bit and uh, you start listening to their conversation. (laughs) And they were talking about a ministry that they were a part of. And the ministry really had two goals. Number one, to find people who didn't have homes and to give them homes. And number two, to find children who didn't have homes and to give them homes. And so this ministry in our own county, uh, not very far from where we lived at the time, was doing this kind of work in our own city and we had no idea. And so as she listened, she was drawn in, drawn in, until she inserts herself into the conversation And this is where we meet our next guide. 
And she looks the lady in the face after talking to him for a little bit and says, I will call you. Which, if you know Heidi, like, that's not necessarily how she rolls. But she was like, I will call you. And within 72 hours, both of us were sitting in the office of the director of this ministry. So we heard a little bit about the ministry and we're kind of getting to our end of our conversation and they're about to take us on a tour. And the director says, can I pray for you guys before we go on this tour? Well, yeah, of course. And so then she starts to pray. Well, like I said, we knew God, but we were able to learn about God in some new and and refreshing ways. And it was in that experience that once she began to pray, I thought to myself, oh, wow, she going to pray. Like, I remember as a kid being a part of some experiences where, where people were fitting to pray. And that's where, like, she was getting after it. So, there was a part in the prayer where she stops and she looks at Heidi and she says, Hey, I don't know if this means anything to you, but I really feel like there's a spirit of anxiety and depression upon you. And of course, Heidi's like, how did you know that? <laughs> and she spends some time praying over that, releasing that, etc. And I'm sitting there going like... Yeah, keep praying for her. <clears throat> and then she, she looks me in the face. And she's like, I don't know if this means anything to you, but I, I believe the Lord wanting me to tell you that the dream, the vision that He's given you hasn't gone anywhere. Hasn't changed and I mean, at the time, come on, I'm like, I'm like a 35-year-old man, you know? And I'm looking this lady in the face. <laughs> I mean, undone in tears. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that means something to me. Um, and, and it was in those, those tears and those brokenness and those hearing from the Lord that the guide really the Lord through this ministry really began to change us and set us down a course of, of living out a plan, which we didn't realize at the time was discipleship. I mean, it was hanging out with these people. It was listening to what they said, studying the Bible with them, living life uh, on life with them, participating in ministry with them, being out in the community with them. And, and even though we didn't have the language to describe it, they discipled us to really know and live out the Lord in, in different ways, ways we weren't used to, which was amazing and ultimately really had a lot to do with us, um, us being here. Uh, and so we were, we were tremendously impacted by that. Now, as our stories overlap with the story of Peter, I bring us back to the main thing, which is, We believe that God looks like Jesus. Just like Peter, I had to learn in the midst of our story that God, in looking like Jesus, can really be trusted. You know, when Peter's out there on the water, some of the issue going on there is trust-related. In the midst of all the waves, in the midst of all the storm, in the midst of all the trials, on either side, distracting. Can you keep your eye focused on the person of Jesus and really trust Him? One of the authors that we read from in discipleship school is Greg Boyd, and a couple quotes from him that are meaningful to me. One is, our relationship with God totally depends on the picture we have of Him. Another is, you can't have a faith relationship with a God you don't trust. 
what's the character of the God you're believing in? And that was really a question that I had to come to grips with. You know, did I believe that God was overbearing and disappointed and upset with me and wondering why couldn't you get it together enough to see this thing through? What's amazing to me in Peter's story is that Jesus doesn't react that way. Peter starts to sink and Jesus' response isn't, what's your problem, man? Don't you know who I am? I just told you I am. Isn't that enough for you? Jesus doesn't respond with Peter like, wow, you've been walking with me all this time and you still can't trust me? Peter cries out for salvation and Jesus' immediate response is to reach out and save him. What a revelation of who God is. One more time, Peter starts to sink, crying out, save me. And Jesus doesn't say, save yourself, man. Jesus doesn't say, obviously, you don't make the cut. Jesus immediately reaches out, grabs his hand, and becomes his firm footing right there on the water. So I must ask you, what God are you believing in? Is your God the God that looks like Jesus? When it comes to perception of God, like that's my biggest struggle. That God is overbearing, that God isn't happy with me, that I'm never good enough to please God. Just being real for a minute. <laughs> but it gives me so much hope in this passage that Jesus does not live that way. So secondly, what is up with Peter walking on the water? Like he actually does. I look at the story and I'm like, okay, first of all, I can somewhat make sense of him getting out of the boat because he wanted to do nothing but be like Jesus. I can kind of come to grips with that. But the text says he walked on the water, at least for a little bit. What is up with that? Like he actually did it. So I really wrestle with, is that the norm? I mean, in the kingdom of God, is walking on the water not just possible, but like the reality. Jamie really messed with me a few months ago when he did the sermon on what is real, what is really real, and really framing that within the context of the kingdom of God. That oftentimes when we look at God's activity in the world, we kind of look at it like God exists outside of the world, and when he breaks into the world and sets some things right, wow, that's amazing, that's fantastic, it's just not normal. And I believe that this story really challenges that. That actually, Jesus is active in our world, making all things new, on a journey to set all things right, on a journey to collide heaven and earth, and we have the opportunity to participate in that. And when we do, that is actually reality. Does it always work out that way? No. Are there winds? Are there waves? Are there lightning? Are there thunder? Is there storms? Absolutely. And yet Jesus is on the offensive in his kingdom, subverting those systems and subverting those issues in order with us to make things right. And ultimately, that's the destination of where our story is headed. And so we can live with confidence, even though we don't always see that happening. We can keep our eyes focused on him and live with confidence to that end, because that is our normal. That is our reality. And the reason I'm passionate about this is because I'm preaching to me, because that's the message I need to hear more and more and more more. Jesus is trustworthy and his reality is coming about. So by faith, we can participate with him in living out that reality for the sake of other people. So 
N.T. Wright talks about this a little bit. He says the point is that miracles are starting to be normal in the new world, which we see close up and personal with Jesus, and then which, through the ministry of the gospel thereafter, start to happen in different ways in the wider world. It's about the launching of new creation, not about an invasion of the old creation. In other words, Jesus does not sometimes invade our realities by showing up in our lives to wow and amaze us with abnormal displays of power. Rather, Jesus is already at work within our realities, launching a new spirit-infused normal where his life becomes our lives, where his realities become our realities. His kingdom becomes the water in which we swim out our lives. Just keep swimming. Sorry. Um, We believe that God looks like Jesus. As a result, the discovery of our true selves and the life applications of who we are find firm footing in him alone. Through this passage, and hopefully through my own story, Jesus reveals God and how he is our firm footing. If you would please stand. I'd like to invite ministry team and worship team as well. As we arrive at the call to action this morning, I want to invite you to act in one of three ways. One is, going back to the question, what God are you believing in? Is your God the God that looks like Jesus? A second possible call to action, are you living a spirit-filled life in the Jesus-like realities of the kingdom of God? Do you find the kingdom of God exuding and reflecting through your life? A third call to action would be, How do you need to come to Jesus today? Maybe it's not the question of what God you're believing in. Maybe it's not the question of how do you see the kingdom being being portrayed and lived out in your life. But maybe it's something else. All I know is just like Jesus and Peter were able to get back into that boat with their community and their community surrounded them, surrounded each other and worshipped him as the son of God. That's exactly how this community operates. And so these folks, they've experienced the storms. They've experienced the winds. They've experienced the waves. They've grown. They've experienced the mountaintops. They've experienced the valleys. And together, we surround each other in a community, lifting up Jesus. It's the model of what God is like and as the person in which we find his kingdom. So during our time of ministry, I invite you forward, really for any reason, for any reason, because our desire is to surround you with support, with hope, and with love. So let's pray for each other during these moments.